Bloom Where You're Planted is the name of the series. Ten parts on the life of the Old Testament Joseph. Part one today is called In the Pit. It all happens in Genesis, the book of beginnings. It's a fast-moving, amazing document that clearly and indisputably has the hand of God upon it. And in fact, I believe it's God-breathed. Genesis moves quickly through the creation account. In just two short chapters, the world is created. Then it's on to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. After Adam is expelled from said garden, we get the trials and tribulations of Cain and Abel and the mounting sinfulness in the world. Genesis 6 and following is the account of Noah and his ark and the miraculous preservation of the human race through the great flood of judgment and the repopulating of the earth that followed. As the people established themselves again, settled into the plain of Shinar in Genesis 11, sin rears its ugly head once more. Nimrod rises in prominence and a tower is built in a vain attempt to reach heaven. You remember the story. The Lord confounds the effort, language is confused, and the people are scattered. In Genesis 12, God, who has been attempting to reach the entire world, now begins to focus on one man. He would use that one man to reach one nation, and in turn, through that nation, the world. The man was Abraham, the nation Israel, and a covenant was established. As the chapters of Genesis play out, the story of Abraham and his legacy begins to take shape. He has a son, his name is Isaac, a miraculous birth in his and Sarah's old age. Isaac then has a son named Jacob, and Jacob would be the one who is eventually called Israel meaning Prince of God. Jacob would marry two women. One was Leah, but it was Rachel whom he loved. But Rachel was barren. Leah and two handmaids would produce ten sons. Finally, Rachel's womb was opened, and she had a son. His name was Joseph. Joseph was the son of Jacob's old age, the child of his beloved and troubled wife, Rachel. And Joseph would become Jacob's favorite. It would lead to an amazing sequence of choices and events that would shape the course of history. Joseph's life would be affected in terrible ways. Adversity and trial would be introduced to him on numerous occasions and in many unfair and unjust ways. Like you and me, Joseph would have to choose how to handle each set of circumstances and life as a whole. Joseph would choose to bloom where he was planted. As you've figured out by now, Joseph is the topic of our summer sermon series 2018. I have long found him, Joseph, to be a source of inspiration and encouragement. I've always wanted to preach a sermon series on the life of Joseph, but I have not felt released to do so until now. That tells me it's for us today. It's for you, and it's for me. 
here at Central Assembly in the summer of 2018. My, my prayer as we study the life of Joseph over the course of the summer is that somehow, some way, we learn what it means to bloom where you're planted. We pick up the story of Joseph in Genesis 37. That's where we'll be hanging out today. And other than five passing mentions of him in genealogical fashion, this is our first opportunity to get to know the young man, Joseph. Now 17 years old, according to verse 2 of chapter 37. We don't know much about his childhood other than he was the apple of his father's eye. And I know it sounds like an advantage. It sounds like a blessing. And in some ways it is. But it also brings with it the perils of early success. Early success does not always serve us well. It didn't benefit Joseph. In fact, it it started him out in the hole And eventually, he wound up in the pit. Verse 3 and 4 of Genesis 37 say this. It says, now Israel, Israel speaks of the man Jacob. Now Jacob, or Israel, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And, And Jacob made Joseph a coat of many colors. When his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peaceably to him. Verse 3 mentions how Joseph was a child of Jacob's old age and how that made him a favorite. Another reason that Joseph was a favorite is insinuated subtly in verse 2. It was, you have to remember, the days of polygamy, more than one wife. And, And your children were classified then by what wife they came from. In verse 2, we see a mention of the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. These were not wives. These were concubines. They, They were servants who could double as baby mamas. In this case, for Jacob, also known as Israel. See, there's a term you never thought you'd hear in a sermon. Joseph was not the son of a servant, and he was not the son of Leah. He was the first son of the love of Jacob's life, Rachel. Rachel would have difficulty having children, but eventually in Jacob's old age, God would answer, and Joseph was born. Rachel would have one more son, as it turns out. Benjamin would be his name, and he plays into our story later in the weeks to come. But it was that first son of Rachel who captured the favor of his father. Being the favorite had its benefits. He got the easier chores, more favorable assignments, better birthday gifts. But it also complicated his relationship with his brothers. And then there was that coat, that insidious Verse 3 says, because he was the son of his old age, he made him a coat of many colors. It all resulted in a growing resentment for Joseph among his brothers. This resentment festered, and by the time we get to verse 4, it's full-blown hate. They hated him, it says, and they couldn't even bring themselves to speak peaceably with him. 
Joseph's formative years surely helped prepare him for what the future held. Perhaps his alienation from his brothers built into him an independence and a strength that seems to set him apart. The favor he had with his dad seems to have instilled a confidence in him that would play a prominent role later in life. Your upbringing may have been less than ideal, even crippling in some cases. But the Bible teaches a wonderful concept of new beginnings and fresh starts that epitomize what the gospel is all about. It's good news. The reality is it doesn't matter where you've been. What really matters is where you are and what direction you're headed in. But the Bible also teaches personal responsibility. The Bible tells us that we're responsible for our own actions. We may have started out in a hole. We may have started life in a pit. But we can dig our way out. We can scramble our way to the surface and become the man, become the woman that God has called us to be. Even if you didn't have early success. Early success brings with it its own baggage. For Joseph, early success brought with it the curse of high expectations. They are difficult to attain, you know, high expectations. And people can quickly become dismayed. Giancarlo Stanton and his $295 million contract, $295 million contract, were acquired by the Yankees prior to to this season, and the Yankee fans celebrated. Big off-season acquisition. In his first game of the season, in front of the hometown fans, Stanton struck out five times and was resoundingly booed. After one game. Why? The contract generated by his own previous success created high expectations that were unmet and produced instant frustration. It's one of the perils of early success. Now another possible peril of early success is a loss of passion. I knew two guys who were exceptional athletes as youngsters. The early success that they had robbed them of passion, appreciation, and the desire to work hard. They were talented, and up to then, that was enough to get them where they needed to be. But as they moved up the levels, and talent wasn't enough anymore, they were not equipped to know what to do and where to go from there. You see, it's not just early success. Think of it in terms of premature success. It can lead to a a third peril of success. A third peril of success before maturity. So premature success, success before maturity. And that can lead to another peril, a character void. We see this in some child actors and athletes who experience success very early in life. Their formative years are spent with people fawning over them. They're coddled and they become used to having everything go their way. 
Mike Tyson is a great example. He grew up the toughest guy in his neighborhood, I'm sure. Everyone cowered in his presence. All the kids at school gave him their milk money. <laughs> then he became heavyweight champ, and he had it all. But he was missing the people skills and the character traits that are difficult to develop when everything goes your way. So when Mike Tyson propositioned a woman and she said no, he didn't know how to handle that because of all his premature success. He had never had anyone say no to him before. He had never learned the value of delayed gratification or the purpose of self-denial. So he raped her and he went to prison for it. And when he boxed Evander Holyfield in the fight began to get away from him. He had never learned <coughs> to lose with dignity. So he literally bit off a chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear and was disqualified. The perils of premature success. As parents, we must be careful. Thanks, baby. That's my daughter, for anybody that doesn't know. I don't call all the women in the church baby. <laughs> As parents, we must be careful to create an appreciation for success in our children. They're not entitled to success. Hear me now. Your children are not entitled to success. It's not our job as parents to go before our kids and make sure all the dominoes fall their way. When we do that, we create premature success and it may not be good for them. I cringe when I see parents criticizing the coach over the child's playing time or criticizing the teacher over the grade that the student received. I believe one of the best lessons that we can teach as parents is personal responsibility. If they aren't getting enough playing time, maybe they should work hard to catch the coach's eye by hustling in practice, staying after to work on a skill that will benefit their game. If their grade is not what they think it should be, how about some extra credit work or more study time or time invested in the class itself? And, and do you want to teach your kid a real life lesson do you want to impart to your kids the most practical lesson of all? Do you want to give them something to apply to real life in school, on the job, in relationships, in every other aspect, every other venue of life? Then teach your children that life isn't fair. Teach them to bloom where they're planted. This is a lesson Joseph had to learn. And learning the valuable lesson that life isn't fair helped Joseph to repeatedly rise from the pit of adversity and overcome the circumstances and situations that came his way in this unfair existence we call life. Joseph had the favor of his dad, but not his brothers. The favor he had with his father may have 
left a gap in Joseph's judgment. And, and while nothing definitively is written in Scripture about Joseph, one of the precious few main characters in the Bible that that can be said of, he may have used poor judgment in how he shared his dreams with his brothers. It's important to have a dream. Without a dream, we simply exist. Proverbs 29, verse 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Vision is simply a preferred future. If you don't have a dream for the future, then you aren't aspiring to anything. You aren't growing into anything. A dream is what takes you beyond yourself. Without a dream, you begin to grow complacent and you drift from thriving to existing. It's important to have a dream. But it's also important to declare the dream. Declaring the dream is the incentive that keeps you, that helps you to take the next step in making the dream happen. Let me say that again. Declaring the dream is the incentive that helps you take the next step in making the dream happen. Joseph declared his dream. And while that's good, there may have been a better way. Listen to verses 5 through 11 in Genesis 37. Joseph dreamed a dream. And he told it to his brothers. And they hated him even more. They said to him, and he said to them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance or, or worship, uh, bowed down to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And he, and he dreamed another dream. And he, and he told his brothers. He said, Behold, I, I've dreamed another dream. The sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. And his father observed the same. Joseph had a dream. It was the dream that helped him see the future before he got there. The dream is what keeps us thinking big picture. Without the dream, we're lost in the moment, stuck in the adversity of the present, and weighed down by today's trouble. I think of the recent rash of suicides that we've had in our area. And I wonder what happened to their dream. Maybe a dream, a vision, a preferred future could have somehow, someway produced enough light at the end of the tunnel to keep hope alive. You see, the dream helps you keep your eyes downfield and stirs hope beyond the circumstances of the moment. That's what the dream does. It's the dream that keeps you going when there's nothing left in the tank. It's the dream that keeps you thinking in terms of the big picture. It's the dream that looks 
beyond the heartache of today and into the possibilities of tomorrow. It's the dream that says there's still hope even though the going is tough. It's the dream that provides the strength and the incentive to hold on when all seems lost in the here and now. It's the dream that carries you as if on eagle's wings out of the pit of adversity and onto the mountain of hope. It's the dream that enables us to overcome our trial, endure our pain, release our bitterness, and offer our love. It's the dream that helps us reload, reboot, restart, and renew our passion after all was seemingly lost. It's the dream that dares the soul to go beyond what the eyes can see. Do you have a dream? Do you have a preferred future? You should. You need to. It's the dream that keeps you trusting God in the pit of adversity. In the temple series, we talked a lot about types. And Joseph is a type of Christ. As I mentioned already, nothing negative of him is written. This is a type, a shadow of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. Like Jesus, Joseph was sent of his father. In verse 13 of chapter 37, it says, Israel, Jacob, said unto Joseph, Do not your brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And Joseph said, Here am I. Joseph was sent to his brothers. Jesus was sent to us. And like Jesus, Joseph was not well received by those he was sent to. When they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, the dreamer's coming. Come now, therefore, let us slay him. Cast him into some pit, and we will say that some evil beast has devoured him, and, and then we'll see what will come of his dreams. Jesus was betrayed by a friend and abandoned by his band of brothers. Joseph's own brothers conspired to kill him. Verse 23, And it came to pass when Joseph was come to his brethren, they stripped him of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him, cast him into the pit. Joseph was stripped of his coat. Jesus was stripped of his garments. Jesus found himself lifted up on a cross. And Joseph found himself lowered into the pit. Have you ever been in the pit of adversity? My hunch is you have. Some of you are there right now. Do you like being in the pit of adversity? If you do, here's what you can do to stay there. Five ways to stay in the pit of adversity. Number one, wallow in self-pity. Believe no one else in the world suffers but you. That's the key. The victim mentality will keep you in the pit. Just keep believing the whole world is out to get you. Number two, isolate. Don't let anyone know. Let your pride keep you from reaching out to anyone. Number three, Blame others. This is the best way to keep yourself from taking the steps necessary to better yourself. Just blame everyone else and you receive a lifetime pass to the pit of adversity. Number four, 
Blame God. Another way to sign up for a lifetime membership to misery is to blame God. You will never get out of the pit if you live like God is out to get you. And number five, do nothing. If you want to stay where you are, do nothing. Doing nothing is the perfect recipe for those who want nothing to change. These are the keys to staying mired in the pit of adversity. Self-pity, isolation, blaming others, blaming God, and doing nothing. It's a sure recipe for life in the pit. But if you're looking for success in life, you'll have to learn to endure life in the pit. Everyone, even successful people, will face adversity. We all have to spend some time in the pit, but wise people choose not to live there. Five ways to endure the pit of adversity. Five ways, five keys to endure the pit of adversity. Number one, Choose to trust God. Take all the other options off the table. Choose to trust God. In John chapter 6, the 70 have left, 70 of Jesus' disciples have left during a, during a time of what? A time of adversity. 70 of them go their own way. And Jesus looks at the 12, the core group. He says, what about you guys? Are you guys going to leave too? And Peter gives one of his great answers. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other options, Peter says. There's, there's no one else to turn to. We have but one hope. And his name is Jesus Christ. Choose to trust God even in your dark hour. Know, even in your time of adversity, know this, Know that God is not your problem. God is your solution. Number two, don't isolate. It's the oldest military trick in the book. Isolate your prey. The devil does this well. If he can isolate you, it's only a matter of time. Like a sheep separated from the flock or a soldier lost in the jungle with the supply lines cut off, you begin to weaken and you become vulnerable. Do, hear me, church, hear me. Do, in your, in your darkest hours of adversity, do what's necessary to stay connected. Number three, do what you know is right. Don't make rash or extreme decisions in a time of adversity. Stay with the, with the tried and the true. Pray, go to church, fellowship, read the word, worship. Do what you know is right in your time of adversity. Number four, seek trusted Christian counsel. We all need someone to talk to now and then. I know I do. It may be a wise friend. It may be a trained professional. But talk to someone. Talk to someone who is rich in faith. Number five, if you're in the pit of adversity, if you want to endure the pit of adversity, one of the things you need to do is prepare to minister. I say this because 
If you stay faithful in the pit of adversity, a day will come when your story will help someone else. Bob Lascala's testimony there before the sermon started. Found himself in a pit of adversity. What did he do? He, he just got ready to minister. First, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 says, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves were comforted by God. If you're in the pit of adversity, stay faithful and prepare to minister. Stay faithful and you'll discover what Joseph's brothers will find out some 14 chapters from now in Genesis 50 verse 20. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring to pass as it is this day to save many people alive. What the enemy meant for evil, God can use for good. Stay faithful in the pit of adversity and prepare to minister. That's what Joseph did. He found a way to bloom where he was planted. And it's all about trusting God, isn't it? Every great Bible hero had his moment in the pit. Every great Bible hero had to trust God in the midst of the most extreme situations. David confronted Goliath. Daniel faced a hungry lion. Elijah took his stand against the prophets of Baal. Moses stood on the shore of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army bearing down on him. Jonah was stuck in the belly of the great fish. Job lost everything on one day, one terrible day. And Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers. And in those moments, you're faced with two choices. In the midst of your adversity, you have two choices. One is to stay in the pit and complain about how unfair it is. The second option is to trust God. The second option is to endure in the pit of adversity. It's the choice to believe that while God didn't plan this, he can still use it. And truth be told, trusting God is the only way out. In your adversity, and I know some of you are there today, choose to trust God. Don't isolate. Don't let the enemy cut you off. Don't let the enemy cut your supply lines. There's times it doesn't, times it's hard to come to church. It's hard to go to small group. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want people to know it's the plan of the enemy to get you to isolate. You stay away once, it's easier to stay away the next week. You stay away twice, it's really hard to come back the third. Stay away for a month. Don't isolate. Number three, do what you know is right. There's some things that I just know are right. Some things I'm up in the air about. 
Some things I know are right. I know when I get up in the morning, it's a good thing to read my Bible. So whether it's a good day or a bad day, when I get up, I read my Bible. Do what you know is right. I know it's a good thing to be in church. If I'm having a good Sunday or a bad Sunday, good week or a bad week, I go to church. Is this the time to sell the house? Is this the time to change churches? It's not the time of adversity, adversity to make those decisions. Instead, do what you know is right. Number four, seek wise counsel. Seek wise Christian counsel. Sometimes you just need somebody to talk to. Other times we need professional help. Find wise Christian counsel. And number five, stay faithful and prepare to minister. We'll make our way through Joseph's story. And it seems as though everything that happens to him is unfair. And it's all there for us to read so that we can remember when we're mistreated, when we're forgotten, that all we're called to do is to stay faithful. To stay faithful, prepare to minister. Bob got sent to the hospital. I'm sure the thoughts are running through his mind. Why, why me? Why am I here, Lord? And I think God would have said, you know, Bob, it's really not about you. It's about the two guys that are going to show up as your roommates. And if you stay faithful in your adversity, I'm going to use you. God will use you where you are. You can bloom where you're planted. I want to close with this thought. If you're going through your time of adversity, this is a life-defining trial for you that you're in the midst of. Would you stand? We all go through trials. There's different trials, right? Some are big, some are little. Some are life-defining trials. Maybe you thought you were alone. Maybe you thought you were alone. We encourage you that are standing to read over those five things again. Would you, church, would you begin to pray with me? Pick out somebody. As you look around, would you pick somebody out? And would you begin to pray for them? Lord, there are folks here today. They're in the pit. They're in their, in their dark hour. They're in the midst of the situation and circumstances that, that, that may define their life one way or the other. Lord, you brought us a message today from the Old Testament, Joseph. Lord, I pray you'd help us. Lord, when the enemy wants us to blame others or to blame you, I pray, Lord, we'll hearken back to these moments. When the enemy tempts us to isolate, when every bone in our body tells us to isolate, you'll remind us of the importance of staying connected. And Lord, I pray that we would always be like Joseph, always preparing for that moment 
that opportunity to minister. And later in our story, Pharaoh will call for Joseph. And from the depths of the, the prison cell will emerge a man named Joseph to interpret his dream. Lord, may we be ready the day Pharaoh calls. May we be ready the day we're called to step to the forefront. May we, be, may we have shown ourselves faithful in the hours of adversity. When it's time to tell our story, it'll be one of faithfulness. Lord, I pray that you would help these folks to endure. Lord, I, I pray that they would leave here knowing that they're not alone. There's others in the midst of adversity too. And you haven't left them. You haven't forsaken them. Lord, I pray that you would help them to endure. Oh, Jesus.